Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your scripture, for Holy Writ, for the way that you continue to speak to us through your word even today, especially through the book of Hebrews, Lord. And as we uh, dig into the second chapter, we pray that you continue to open our eyes to see how your son is the fulfillment of all the promises that you have made from time eternal, from the Old Testament time still to today, that you are a faithful Lord in whom we may place our trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Yes. Oh, and we got some more. George. All right. As we are getting going here this morning, excited to uh, be with you all today on this beautiful fall day, right? It really feels like fall now. Uh, it's pretty great. Other than uh, Michigan State football. We just won't talk about that. Yeah, we'll just... We'll just pass that right on by. No, we don't need to say go blue either, but uh, no. I'm glad that those guys are doing all right. At least one of them are. Uh, but uh, had quite a week. I went out to Oregon this week and uh, spoke at the pastor's conference out there and then came right back on Friday. So it's been a fun time of being able to teach and visit with other uh, pastors out there in Cannon Beach. And incidentally, just, sh- just south of Cannon Beach, the next place right south of it, is called, guess, Arcadia Beach. (laughs) What do you know? So anytime you go to a beautiful place, they name it Arcadia. But uh, excited to get into chapter two here. We'll try to get through the first half of chapter two of Hebrews. We've got a lot here. I want to start with this, board books. You guys know what I mean when I talk about board books? What's a board book? That puts you to sleep, David says. Yeah, you've read a few board books. Board book, yeah, Marion. Yeah, exactly. The more heavy-duty kind of cardboard books for children. Yolanda, you certainly know what we're talking about. So I was looking up, what are your top board books of all time? If you haven't looked already at your sheet, anybody care to guess? What's there up, up at the top of your board books of all time? Good night, moon. Ding, 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 ding. You know, survey says that's numero uno. Mm. Any other guesses? What might be up there? Mm. You gotta think back to your children's books. You already looked. Okay. Uh, You've got the very hungry caterpillar, an Eric Carle classic, blue hat, green hat, which I wasn't as familiar with. Anybody know blue hat, green hat? It's not. It sounds like Dr. Seuss, but it's it's. um, I think it's. Kate DiCamillo, maybe? But um, anyway, and then my personal favorite came in at number four, also by Eric Carle, Brown Bear, Brown Bear. Brown Bear, Brown Bear. That kind of surprised me, right? Although I don't think as many of his books are board books. They're too too long. Maybe so. I don't know. Maybe he's fallen out of favor. But uh, you remember in Brown Bear, Brown Bear, what do you see? That's the recurring question in it. So I was thinking about brown bear, brown bear. As we get into this section of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews is trying to help his hearers to see what he sees. And perhaps even more to the point, to hear what he hears. To find out what sense, which of our senses can we most trust when it comes to the life of faith. So we are in Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, you remember last week we looked at angels, and we talked about angels, and so, you know, as we always have to remember, there aren't these um, same kind of chapter breaks as the book was originally composed, or in this case, as the sermon was originally delivered. And so, just to read verse 14, and then to go right into chapter 2. Yep, did you need a handout, young man? Okay, you're just going around. 
So verse 14 of chapter 1 says, Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And then right on, it goes right into chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, we're going to stop there. There's always so much to disentangle with Hebrews. And so we're going to try and walk through this and see what are the big takeaways here. What is he trying to tell us and to convey? In these first few verses of, of chapter 2, he's reflecting on how in chapter 1 he talked about the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is superior to angels. He's far beyond any and all of God's creatures. So he said how Jesus himself, as the Son of God, is not a creature. He is the creator alongside the Father. And so in view of who Jesus truly is and his exaltation and his superiority over all else, now in chapter 2, the preacher turns and he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, Jesus, y'all, Jesus is the greatest, the highest, the most exalted. He's the one that we need to attend to. He's the one which we need to focus upon. And so number one on your handout there, under the, that second heading, in view of Jesus' superiority, we must pay much closer attention to him. Much closer attention to him. And why? What, what's the connection here between his superiority and the need to pay closer attention to him? Pay closer attention to him as opposed to what? Angels, maybe. Okay, angels, perhaps. Priests. Priests. Prophets. Prophets. All the Old Testament revelation. Remember how the book started. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son. Is he telling us, don't pay attention to the Old Testament? No. Neglect the priest. Neglect the prophet. No. And as we'll see throughout Hebrews, he's going to draw our attention to it many times. But he's saying, also and much more so, do we need to attend to his son Jesus? And the Greek is emphatic here. We must pay much closer attention. Much closer attention. Um, in John chapter 10, it's this great discourse, if you will, on Jesus as the good shepherd. And he says something that's apropos and relevant to um, what Hebrews says here. In John 10, verses 1 to 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his what? Voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they'll flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This is interesting. What Jesus is saying is that when it comes to the life of faith, a lot of it is attuning our ears to the voice of our good shepherd. Attuning our ears to the voice of our good shepherd. 
And in the early church, this is how some of the church fathers would talk about and contend for the truthfulness of the Christian faith as opposed to the various and sundry heresies that were springing up, competing saviors and would-be messiahs. Because they didn't have the New Testament collected in one codex, one book, the way that we do now. So if you're in the second century and you're a, a teacher of the faith and you're trying to convince and to, to catechize, to form God's people, to follow Jesus and follow him alone, what are you exhorting them to? And what Irenaeus in his great book Against Heresies talks about is the importance of attuning our ears to the voice of the shepherd. And he talks about how even um, these very rudimentary, even barbarian kind of Christians, these folks who were uneducated common people, even as the disciples themselves were, they followed Jesus and they knew, if I can change your, your sense, by, by the sniff test, they could tell whether or not they had the real deal. As these um, false teachers were coming and offering up to them uh, some of these contrary pseudo-gospels. Some of these we still have today. Things like the, the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Judas, the stuff that National Geographic trots out every few years and says, hey, we found this new thing that was suppressed by the, the church. They didn't want this included. Nothing could be further from the truth because Christians from the various, very earliest days, they knew the voice of their shepherd. They knew the smell of the good news. And so they sniffed it out. They said, no, we follow the voice of our shepherd. We listen to the voice of the one who has called to us each by name. Jesus says later in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and they give me eternal life. Right. Go ahead, Hans. About the shepherds. Yeah. Uh, I, when I hear this, I had to go back and kind of look. Uh -huh. And it's, why, why call a sheep? Because back then they used to put all the sheep into one large pen, different flocks. Mm -hmm. To, so they could have group watch over them at night. And, right, right. And then in the morning, the shepherd would come in, just, and his sheep would come out from all the other sheep. Sure. So this, because they knew his voice. Because they knew his voice. Yes. And you know, when you when you think about it that way, it's like, okay, he's calling us. Yeah. You know, does doesn't he call all of us? Oh, okay, so now you want to get into some murky theological waters. I see how it is, Hans. <laughs> he says, doesn't, doesn't he call all of us? Many are called, but, but few are chosen. So, um, the, yes, the call goes out. Here we're looking at more, more narrowly in the sense of his church. Those, I, I know my own, and my own know me. Right? For those who have hearkened to and received the voice of, of the good shepherd. Right? And through baptism have been made part of his flock. Now, Jesus says in John 10 that I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and I must go and gather them in also, or something to that effect. Uh, so, yeah, he's not, being, he's not trying to be exclusionary in saying that, but he's just, it's, it's a statement of fact that this is, those who are of his, of his own flock hear his voice and follow him. Now, the question that this raises for me then is what are the competing voices that also clamor for our attention, right? If Jesus is the voice whom we need to attune our ears to, and there's other voices out there that we need to be aware of, what are some of the, the other voices even today that we need to be careful not to attend to as we pay much closer attention to him? Internet. Okay, just the internet in general. I agree. <laughs> Seriously, just the internet. A pox on all your houses there. But, right? 
you don't know what you're receiving. on the, That doesn't mean to say that you can't find good stuff on the internet. Trinity Lutheran sermons are on the internet, so I hope you <laughs> But you're right. We need to be a lot more discerning and discriminating with what we find on the, on the internet. Yeah, Bob. Even within our own church, and I think Hebrews helps us, the competing voice in Hebrews is still God's word. Interesting, yeah, that's a good point. But it's the loss yes. of it, and it's not fulfilling. And I'm even watching in our own church body how we're, we're calling Lutheran distinctives something other than the gospel. Sure. The, and that's a frightening thing when we start adding to the gospel little incremental things right. that are... They're, they're not the gospel. They're not the gospel, right. So this is, this is a good point, that to recognize that in keeping with Hebrews, um, those other things that we attend to is not that they're unimportant, even within our, our Lutheran body of doctrine, if you will. Uh, but if it isn't leading us back to the main thing that is the main thing, the gospel, the justification for, uh, for sinners, then we are, uh, we're having our attention led astray in a sense. Yeah, that's a great point. Other voices that we might be tempted to attend to more so than the voice of our Lord and his good news. Wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world, absolutely. And uh, again, there's good things that we should listen to, that we can draw from, but it's a question of what do we pay the most attention to? What is uppermost in our ears and in our, in our eyes, in our attention? Good. All right. Well, this, I want to... Uh, attend for a moment to the second half of that as well, because I think it follows right from it. He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Drift away from it. This is fascinating. He doesn't say, lest we run away from it, lest we repudiate it, lest we disown it. But he says, lest we drift away from it. So number two on your handout, I say, beware the threat of going with the flow. Uh, again, the Greek word there, which is parareo, I can't even pronounce that, parareo, has this idea of drifting away, leaking out, gliding by, just kind of do, 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 do. sneaking out. Sneak, sneaking out, but that maybe even expresses too much of an intentionality. Uh, we've, I, last night, I went to uh, get some oatmeal from, from downstairs, and we've got a great big bag from uh, Orchard, um, Lane. Orchard Lane store, right? It's like a 15-pound you know, bag of oatmeal. <laughs> and I go to pick up our bag of oatmeal, and a little friend, whom I will soon find, <laughs> had bit just a little hole in it. And so I pick up the bag, I'm walking away with it. When I find it, I've suddenly <laughs> left a trail of oats. This is the idea. They're just drifting away, leaking out, even unbeknownst to you. This is a concern that is regularly uh, mentioned in the scriptures. Jesus himself says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Huh. Yes, that does remind me of what I need to get later. Huh. <laughs> or 1 Peter 4. This is very similar. Peter says, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. There's a mouthful for you. And they malign you. There's this sense in which it's just going with the flow, and it happens so naturally. Jan, did I see with your hand up? 
No, but um, I was thinking it's also like uh, if you don't have a strong anchor. Yes, if you don't have a strong anchor. And so then your boat just gets carried by the wind or right? whatever, and it just gradually goes away from yes. where you want it to be. Yeah, that's a that's a great picture of it. You know how that is if you're out on a kayak or something. If you're not, next thing you know, you're like, how did I end up so far away from shore? This is kind of the idea that uh, the, the preacher here is, is leading us to. We need to attend all the more to Jesus as our fixed point. Remember that sermon I gave um, earlier this summer, I think it was, about plowing and plowing for the faith and why we, how you need that fixed point out ahead, right? Otherwise, the next thing you know, you're, you've got your crooked furrows. If, as, if you recall the story, you watch the cow that's you know, meandering on the horizon and you end up instead of that fixed point. We need that fixed point of faith. We need to keep our eyes, as he will sit later say, fixed on Jesus, lest we drift away. And this is a great opportunity to, for me to bring out one of my favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton. A dead thing goes with the stream. Only a living thing can go against it. Hmm. Sometimes we're called, many times, to go against the stream, to go against that current, lest we just go with the flow. Yeah, Bob? This is a powerful thought. Because television, since it's invention almost, is whether we like it or not, either confirmed or led our culture in its value system. Absolutely, yeah. So I grew up with, you know, I was catechized by my three sons and father. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, catechism class then was, in a sense, making sure it was Christ-centered, but the law, natural or revealed, was still reinforced constantly by sure. television. Yeah, media. that's right. We were watching a film the other night, uh, a series on television, and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere in the conversation, two police are talking to each other, and he says, so let me get this right. You're married and you have a boyfriend. She <laughs> said, that's right, but my husband has a boyfriend too. Oh, God. And, and I mean, yeah. it's just normal. It's just normal. But right. you see, you see it, it's intentional, the profound cultural drift right. that comes to us through the catechization yes. of the media. Yep. And we're Hollywoodizationed yes. as a nation. Mm -hmm. But it's profound so that so many young people today do not, even Christian young people, have oh, sure. no thought right. that living, you know, having relationships outside of marriage or. Sure. It's normal, right? And that's that drift thing. That's the drift. About. But it, it takes decades sometimes. Sure. But it's profound. Yeah. Yeah. And how we tune stuff. into that? Yeah. Absolutely. The thing about there's good TV shows, but then they sneak in all this little stuff that is like, whoa. Right. And a lot of I find, and I turn it off completely when I can. But you'll find a good show, and its only reason for being there is to show violence. Mm -hmm. And I go, wait a minute. Right. It's, it's crazy. And I, it is. And I think you know, the word that Bob used is right, that we get catechized by these things. Yeah. Our, our, our hearts and our minds and our imaginations are formed by the things that we receive, that we take in. Um, and, I mean, it goes without saying that now the phone's even more so, right? Where... Uh, you know, we get an hour, a couple hours on Sunday morning. It's really hard to fight back against eight hours or more every day, right? And this is not just a call to you, young people, but to all of us, because I see all y'all with your phones, all right? <laughs> it's not just a young people thing. It's for all of us. We are formed and shaped by the currents, and isn't that interesting? We call them the cultural currents that are all around us, and they can be leading us astray. If we're not being intentional 
about a counterformation. And that's why we gather together, why it is so important what we do on Sunday morning and, and throughout the week as believers, because we need to return to our fixed anchor, looking to our fixed point in Jesus. Yeah, Ellen. When you were talking about the television, it, it says it in its name, Tell a Vision. <laughs> so you already know how, what it is. Sure, yeah, it's telling you vision. And, and that vision is probably not lining up with the kingdom of God. Very good. <clears throat> yeah, Leslie. I have a cousin who's in show business. Uh-oh. Yeah. And when we got done, I looked at my sisters and I said, What's he doing? he's a Christian. Why does it have to be like that? Yeah. And my brother-in-law says, because that's the culture we live in. That's what people want. Right. I said, well, I sure as heck don't. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I don't want to go too far down this road of just all the things that are wrong with, with the culture, and they are many. But you're absolutely right, that we need to be more discerning and discriminating as believers when it comes to the things that we take in. I think there can be a place for um, different expressions of artwork that, do, that are, you know, aren't just you know, upholding Christian values all the time. Because we're sinners, and we need to see, in some cases, the consequences of, of sin, right? D to pay, displayed and depicted. Um, but uh, there's definitely real problems there. Yeah, Mark, go ahead. Well, I don't know if you saw in the paper, the Manistee paper this last week, but there's a school, and I don't remember where it is, that was a parochial school. Okay. And they prohibited all phones in sure. the school. Sure, right. The high school. And how the kids reacted so much differently. Mm. What At lunchtime, they're talking to each other instead of looking at their phones. Right. Um, you know, it just was a whole different atmosphere yeah. at that school, and they said, you know, I don't know if every school can do it. It was a parochial school, so maybe they had more control. But Yep. I, Wendell Berry, my favorite <laughs> author, he, he says, he asks the question rhetorically, he says, or, or referring back to what others will say to him, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? Because, you know, there's always that kind of thing like, well, it's a slippery slope. We allow this. Why, why shouldn't we allow this? He says, where do we draw the line? Wherever we can. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, <clears throat> Hebrews was written 2,000 years ago, and he was, he was lamenting and bemoaning how God's people were drifting away. Guys, this is not anything new. We're just finding new ways to make it easier for us to, to drift away. And so I don't want to just be the grumpy old guy saying, oh, back in my day, we really had it right. We did, all right? You did. None of us did. But it's continuing to accelerate. All right, let's, let's keep going. Oh, I'm sorry. You pointed out it's not just the youth, but adults. But sometimes I think we think as adults, we're beyond that. It's not going to bother us. Right. Influences. Yep. But it does. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yep, peer influence doesn't stop when you leave high school. That's for sure. Okay, so then from here, uh, the preacher goes on, and he's making a case for the faithfulness of the Lord's testimony in, his, in the Son of God, in Jesus. Okay. He's saying we've got to pay much closer attention to Jesus. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, what's he talking about, the message declared by angels? Birth of Jesus, birth of Jesus yeah. Oh, interesting, the birth of Jesus. Now, this is not where my mind went to right away, and I'm not sure that's what he had in mind either, but that's an interesting connection. You guys both thought of that. Go 
The Torah. The, the, the Torah. Now, this, I think, would have been the first thought for his hearers, although the birth of Jesus is another interesting thought. There was this notion that, um, although it's not there in uh, explicit in Exodus, but that the law was delivered with the angels as intermediaries. In Acts 7, this is in Stephen's sermon right before he's stoned. You, he says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Or again, Galatians 3, Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay? So there was this uh, tradition and understanding that the law was put into place through angels. So what he's saying there, first and foremost, is that uh, the message declared by angels, i.e. the law, it proved to be reliable. So he's saying there's a legal precedent here to the faithfulness and the reliability of the Lord's word. We have that from the law, and we also saw how every uh, disobedience and transgression received a just retribution. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying just as the law was reliable... And we saw how people reliably suffered the consequences of transgressing it. Now, how much more so when it comes to the, the message of the gospel that we have through Jesus? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Saying now we have a message that is even more important, a savior more superior. How could this be? Now, like a good lawyer, the preacher has he's laid out the legal precedent. Now he's going to set forth three witnesses. Okay? So first... Jesus himself. He says, it was declared at first by the Lord. All right, so you just have the, the message coming from Jesus himself. Matthew 7, when Jesus had finished these sayings in the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So we thought there was that self-validating authority and testimony in the, the word and message of Jesus. But then the second witness that he calls forth are the apostles. It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles. And so you have, for instance, in Luke 1, the beginning of his gospel, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. All right, so you have that first witness of Jesus, the second witness of the apostles, how we know that this word is reliable, but then, like any good lawyer, you save the, the best testimony for last, right? What's the most important witness? Well, God himself. Verse 4, while God also bore witness. How did he do that? By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the, the preaching of the book of Acts especially over and over and over again. The apostles say, this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Sometimes we'll ask, well, did Jesus raise himself or was he raised by the Father? Yes, yeah, and ultimately it's both. Uh, but the, the importance of emphasizing that the Father raised Jesus is that it's vindicating and validating the message of, the, of our Savior, right? The fact that the Father raised Jesus from the dead is him putting him, his stamp on him, as it says in, in Romans 1, declaring him to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Okay. So for all of these, we can be certain and sure in the Lord's word that he truly is the last word of the Father. That while we receive the message from the prophets and the priests, that now we need to attend even more so to Jesus. 
And so kind of the takeaway, the upshot for these first few verses for, for me is don't be like the careless guests at the great feast, the one who were paying attention to all sorts of other things. Instead, attend to the king's call because it's trustworthy. All right. Questions, thoughts, comments on those first few verses of, of chapter 2. Just trying to disentangle this tightly woven argumentation. So you're talking about Christ's authority? His authority? Uh, uh, yes. Is that the ethos? Is that what you... Well, yeah, that's good. So oh. his, his ethos, his, the credibility of his proclamation, why it's trustworthy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just reading your book and it's like... Okay, cool. That's way to score brownie points with the teacher. Huh? I appreciate that. <laughs> but that's exactly right. So Jesus' ethos, his, his credibility, his authority as a preacher, as a speaker... That they were able to recognize. This isn't just another. This isn't just another one of our, our teachers. Yeah. Oh. I also hearing you say in so many words that every every thought, especially every spiritual thought, needs to run through the sieve of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, his cross, that's good. His resurrection. Yep. Everything has to be seen through that. Yes. Remember when students would go out on Vicarage, we had to, our advisees had to come and. We quizzed on Luther's small catechism. Oh, sure. And I would tell my advisees, I would say, first of all, memorize the thing. You're going to ask your kids to do it, so you better know it. Right, yep. And then I'm going to quiz you, and this is the simple question. I'm going to ask you from every single aspect of the catechism to run it through Luther's explanation of the second article. Mm -hmm. Of redemption. If you can do that, then you get what it means to be a Lutheran. Right, that's right. And I, I like how you put that. We're running everything through that filter of, of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he has, has done for us, right? That that's the, that's the lens through which everything else makes sense. It's that cruciform lens. As Luther would say, the cross alone is our theology. What he meant by that is that ultimately we want to understand anything we need to go back to the cross and the empty tomb. Yeah. All right. Let's go on then to the second half of the first half of Hebrews 2, second quarter. Anyway. <laughs> To verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, so now in this second movement, we're going to get into another quotation. He's going to spend a little more time with this passage. And this is from Psalm 8. And in, interpreted in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, just as Bob was saying, through that lens, through that sieve, uh, Psalm 8 depicts the sweep of salvation history. Okay? And this, this can be illustrated through what's been called the parabola of salvation. Okay? So you might think of it like this. Remember parabola, right? <laughs> Inverted uh, parabola here. So you have up at the top, you have Jesus with the Father, right? From, from eternity. There he is, heaven above, okay, kind of the heaven. And then he comes down and for a little while made himself lower than the angels, right? And so here, just for shorthand, you have his, his ministry 
as life and his death. Right? In Philippians 2, he, became, he emptied himself, became obedient even unto death. Until finally then, we have his exaltation and him being seated at the right hand of the Father um, in, the, in the throne. That's a, that's a throne. <laughs> got the king there. Right. It was a very important class at seminary, being able to draw uh, profound theological diagrams. Um, so this is kind of the idea. So now as uh, the, the preacher goes to Psalm 8, he says, this is it's all encapsulated right there in the psalm, this whole sweep. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Now, was this psalm about Jesus originally or was this a psalm that was just prayed by human beings? Again, it's like you, we read backwards. We read the Old Testament backwards where it's a both and sort of thing. I was out this morning uh, well, it was still dark out and underneath the canopy of stars. And I couldn't help but pray this very psalm. <laughs> when I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, right? Now, what's interesting is that the preacher here kind of inverts the, um, the takeaway of Psalm 8, which was originally, wow, even though we humans are so small and insignificant, how God has conferred such dignity upon us and, and made us as like we were one of the angels, right? But now, as the preacher reads Psalm 8, he almost flips it and says, wow, what, what incredible um, condescension of our Savior that even though he is with the Father, he has made himself for a little while lower than the angels, right? And subjected himself to the vicissitudes of our world and especially to death and the grave. All right, so questions about that parabola of salvation or that sweep of salvation history? All right, that's pretty good. I mean, you can, you can probably write it on your own sheet there. Um, so then, as he unpacks and delves into Psalm 8, we find a paradox. We find this tension of the subjection. This is kind of his key word now, is putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And yet at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. And so is it a good thing or a bad thing for there to be this subjection? And again, his answer is yes. So that in the present age, we live in this tension of Jesus' liberating subjection. Okay? His liberating subjection. It's this, this kind of tension, this paradoxical tension of what Jesus endured in order to set us free. And we need to uphold both sides of this tension, as is always the case when we come to these, these tensions. So number three on your handout, on the one hand, if you only focus on the liberation and neglect the subjection, then you don't do justice to our experience of the world. In other words, if you don't acknowledge the fact that as the pre author or preacher in Hebrews himself concedes that right now we don't see everything in subjection to him, then you're never going to live in the realities of this world. Paul says in Romans 8, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Another way of thinking about this is we can't just live, be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, as people sometimes say about Christians. We have to recognize the, the constraints of this present world that now it does not appear that everything is subjected to Jesus. If we only focus on the liberation, 
we're not going to be able to, to reckon with the realities of this present age. You with me on that? Okay, well, let, let me lay out the other side of it, and then we can circle back around. So on the other hand, if you only the, acknowledge the subjection and the way that our world just seems to be chaotic, then you give short shrift to salvation. You give short shrift to what Jesus has already accomplished. That reading from Philippians 2 that I just alluded to. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that we have this freedom, this liberation in Jesus now, everything subjected to him, but in a hidden way. It's not manifest for all to see, not yet. Even as Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's king. He's reigning and ruling right now, but it's hidden. It's hidden behind the cross. So we live in this tension of that liberating subjection, the freedom, and yet still there's the bondage, both of them at the same time. But what we're looking forward to, what we're anticipating, is how God will at the last subject all things visibly to his son. 1 Corinthians 15 takes us there. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 again. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. A little bit of a tongue twister there, right? But the bottom line is for us, for us is that though things appear out of control, nothing is outside Jesus' control. Because if we ignore the fact that right now things don't all appear to be under uh, God's control, we, end, we risk becoming just kind of Pollyanna-ish, right? As, as Christians are sometimes accused of being like, no, everything is fine. There's a hurricane wiping out Florida. Right now. Oh, come on, just change the channel. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, there's so many things in our world today which make it sure appear as though it's not under the thumb of our Lord Jesus. And we can't ignore or neglect the realities of that if we're going to speak truthfully into it. But on the other hand, neither can we concede that, oh yeah, it's just every man for himself. Because Jesus is reigning and ruling even now, hiddenly through his word and spirit and under the sign of the cross. All right. Reflections about that or... Yeah, go ahead, Esther. He's also reigning through his people. And he's reigning through his people. You know, yes. difference in the world. That's right. And so he, he rules in a, in a hidden way through this mustard seed conspiracy of his people. That now as we go out and we might look like the last, the lost, the littlest, and the least, as Robert Farrar Capon says, uh, and nevertheless, in and through us, he is reigning and ruling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point. Other reflections. It's hard to wrap your head around. It is hard to wrap our, our head around. I mean, these paradoxes always are. And the natural temptation is to ease the tension and just to focus on one side or the other. But we uphold it both. What helps me sometimes is um, the Lord is so very, very patient. Yeah. And in, um, in Genesis, he told Abraham, 
your people will suffer for 100, 400 years mm -hmm. because I'm patient. Yeah. And I, I would like the Canaanites to come to me and I'm giving them 400 years. That's or right. in the days of Noah, 120 years he, he preaches righteousness. Um, because I really st struggle with this. I wish he'd hurry up and come. Right. <laughs> but, but he's patient. And, and, when, and his patience requires our suffering. His patience requires our suffering. That's right. I mean, this kind of goes to Habakkuk's issues, right? He's saying, Lord, why? How long? That constant refrain throughout the scriptures. How long, O Lord? And it's even there in Revelation. Yeah. The saints under the altar. How long? God says, hurry up and wait. <laughs> um, but there's also the liberation and faith when we're able to concede that and recognize that. Because I guess this is part of what can cause us to drift away, is if you have an expectation that God's just going to fix everything right away. That the, if you, you know, just turn to Jesus, trust in him, then all the chaos out of your life is, is just going to be driven right away. You're going to be tempted to fall away, to drift away, because it's like, wait, wait a second, this isn't what I signed up for. We have to have that kind of biblical realism that says, no, it doesn't, we're not promised that it's going to be all snowflakes and kittens. We're promised that his, is that he's going to be faithful in the midst of it. And um, I wasn't able to incorporate it into the sermon, but at the end of Habakkuk, in the last few verses, there's this powerful confession of faith. This is the only time Habakkuk shows up in the lectionary in three years, and so I felt kind of compelled to preach on it. So I've got to give Habakkuk his hearing here. This is at the end of Habakkuk chapter 3. Listen to this. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines... Though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, nevertheless, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Ultimately, that's what we are led to when we're able to acknowledge both the present subjection of all things to our Lord Jesus and still that subjection to futility and decay that Paul talked about to a kind of defiant faith that says, nevertheless, even though things seem to spin out of control, still I will trust and rejoice in him because I know he's good and he has given us this reliable testimony in his son. You, you took us through a book a while ago by... Um, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright. Yeah. Where he puts all of this in perspective. Yeah. The hope that we look forward to is anchored in the, the resurrection. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's just solid. You know, that's I said it. to Priscilla the other day, the only thing sometimes I know is real are those three days, Good Friday and that's, Easter. That's right. That's exactly right. That's where we hang our hat. So let's bring it home then. <clears throat> a couple of, of thoughts of more practical or uh, applicable kind of nature. First of all, going back, especially those first few verses, audit your attention. And again, in a recent sermon, we talked about attention. Audit your attention lest you miss the call to the feast. As the Savior comes and calls us to come and join him, and we're listening to all sorts of other things. What's that, Lord? Can't hear you. I quoted from this in that sermon from the movie Lady Bird, when the, the sister, the nun, says to the main character, uh, Lady Bird, she says, don't you think that maybe they are the same thing, love and attention? To ask ourselves, what are the things that I'm attending to? And you know, if you use a smartphone, it has a real ha helpful kind of app. It'll tell you even, here's how many hours you've been spending on this thing. 
even here's what you've been looking at. If you dare, you might look at one of those once in a while. Or if you just have your desktop computer, it can do the same thing, right? But to reflect, I think it's something to prayerfully reflect upon. Lord, what am I attending to? We do this with our finances. We go back, we look through with our budgets. You know, where am I spending my money? Am I putting it through the things that I actually prioritize? How often do we do it with our attention, with our time? Perhaps it's worth doing, lest we drift away. And then secondly, in the battle between the eye and the ear, preacher of Hebrews would tell us, trust the latter. Trust the latter. Listen even before you look. It's a very biblical theme. He'll say later in Hebrews, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things what? Not seen. Romans 8.24, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes for what he sees? And of course, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll be saying a hymn with it this morning. We walk by faith and not by sight. We know this. And yet so often we want to trust our eyes rather than our ears. And what he's calling us to and compelling us toward is to say, you know what? You're going to look and it's going to look as though the world is not under the reign and rule of our Lord Jesus. But listen to his word. Trust in that promise. That's where our hope truly is. And to the extent that we look at all and that we see, listen once again to this word. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. If you're going to look, look to Jesus. Listen to him. His word is trustworthy and sure. Amen? Amen. All right. We'll continue with chapter 2 next week. Thank you guys for your time and your attention.